I'm Barbara Kane. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. Um, before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, on whose ancestral lands the University of Sydney is built. And I'd like to acknowledge also our recognition that this has been a place of learning and culture over many, many centuries. It's a very great pleasure to introduce Catherine Driscoll, who is already, of course, known to many of you, so introduction is not quite the right term, but it's a great pleasure to welcome Catherine. Um, Catherine Driscoll is a professor of gender and cultural studies at this university. Um, she has a PhD from the University of Melbourne and then taught at Melbourne and Adelaide before coming here in 2003, where she's been an absolutely key figure in the development of gender and cultural studies. Catherine's research is organised into three, around three themes or three streams. The first centres on um, youth and girl studies with an emphasis on um, adolescence and on the importance of media and popular culture um, in, communi in communicating ideas about adolescence. The second is on rural cultural studies with an emphasis on Australia and ethnographic research. And finally, she works on cultural theory, especially theories of modernity and the experience of modern life. Catherine's published a number of books, and the books also group themselves around those themes. Um, she's written on youth and girls' studies in a number of books. The first was on girls, feminine adolescence in popular culture and cultural theory, published in 2002. Then a book on teen film, a critical introduction in 2011. The Australian Country Girl, History, Image and Experience in 2014. And there's also a forthcoming book on The Hunger Games, Risk, Spectacle and the Girl Action Hero, written with Alexandra Heatwell and coming out next year. Sounds rather wonderful, I must say. Her interest in cultural theory and theories of modernity and modern life is evident in a book on modernist cultural studies published in 2010. And she's the co-editor with Megan Morris um, of Gender, Media and Modernity in the Asia-Pacific, um, 2014, and with Megan Watkins and Greg Noble, a book on cultural pedagogies and human co conduct in 2015. Catherine has two research projects at the moment, but the central research project is also in this field, focusing on media classification systems and minority groups, and that, like many of Catherine's work, is actually a large group project with an international team. But the final area of interest, which is the one that she's addressing tonight, is on rural culture, and it's evident in the book she wrote jointly with Kate Darian-Smith and David Nichols on cultural sustainability in rural communities, rethinking Australian country towns. And the paper that we're going to hear tonight represents Forthcoming, a forthcoming work, although the research has been done over a number of years, um, looking ahead to a larger project on rural retirement, which is now in development. So, Catherine, welcome. Thanks very much, Barbara. And um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, I think this time I'm just going to stand at the podium so I can show you some slides. Uh, as I've been saying in the lead up uh, to this talk, I have more visually exciting projects than this one, uh, but I do think it's a really interesting topic, so I hope that uh, you get something out of it. I can, everyone can hear me okay? So I'm going to start with the story of Helen. I met Helen at a club in a town I'll call Coastal Centre. She asked if she could sit at my table so she could have a good view of the tennis on television and still hear the member's badge drawer while waiting to be called to collect her meal at the bistro. This was always the seat she sat in on Friday evenings. Helen had retired early, as she put it, after a busy professional life working in television production, hoping to get away from the city. 
She'd been in a comfortable financial position despite being single for a long time since her much older husband died. She was slightly less comfortable now, having lost money in the recent financial crisis and in loans to a friend, another single woman she'd known for decades. They'd retired together, buying adjacent spacious units in an attractive building on the waterfront, but things had gone awry when the friend met a new man and moved to Queensland. After just over three years, Helen now felt trapped, financially tied to a place where she was becoming more and more isolated. While she waited for a sense that she wouldn't lose more money if she tried to reverse her retirement investments. Old friendships in other places had faded and she had no close family left to visit or be visited by. In her early 60s, Helen felt she could find no one to talk to about anything worth talking about. There were certainly places in Coastal Centre more likely than the club to produce the conversations about literature, politics and art Helen said she was searching for. There are book clubs, there's a U3A, a university of the third age, and there are opportunities to volunteer at the gallery, museum and library. But accessing these opportunities is not as simple as signing up. There are waiting lists for the most in-demand volunteer positions, and participating also means being able to socialise effectively with very particular groups of people. Helen had tried a few things of this kind, but her insistence that those groups were full of ignorant people was probably a major obstacle in making them work. <laughs> I took something important from my conversations with Helen. Some of her resentment was directed at a broader situation which had led her to believe that living here would be a pleasure. She felt promotion of the town as a perfect retirement destination and, um, and just Australian culture in general misrepresented retirement as one long holiday. Here's a quote from her. This might seem paranoid, but her feeling someone somewhere should be held responsible for the image of Coastal Centre that had brought her there has some basis in reality. John Connell and Phil McManus's work on institutional efforts at rural revival focuses on the Country Week Expos through which councils are assisted in and represent their own efforts at place marketing. They note that in a broader context, ideas of reality and urban-rural migration are being questioned in a number of countries and theoretical contexts. I'm not going to discuss this place marketing today or dwell on these debates about the impact of Australian sea changing. Instead, I want to take Helen's story along other lines of inquiry. Coastal Centre's cultural resources not only suit some people more than others, the variety of opportunities it offers are restricted by financial resources, social networks and presumed cultural allegiances. Further, Helen's point that it is too easy to confuse holiday pleasures with retirement life is one that deserves to be taken seriously, not just by individuals planning their own retirement, but by policymakers and service providers. Overviewing the 1970s to 1990s, Ian Burnley identifies the large number of people over 55 migrating to mostly coastal country areas of high unemployment as retirees making their decisions on a continuum which is strongly associated with pleasure. This tendency has continued and in conjunction with another equally important tendency in which young people move to the city from the country, a resultant ageing of country Australia is strongly associated with anxiety about its decline in favour of expanding cities. When people move to the country later in life, um, I've written about the earlier move in this earlier book, when people move later in life, Australian demographers, policymakers and popular culture often refer to them as sea or tree changes. For Peter Murphy, 
These older in migrants are self-consciously free agents, relocating to non-metropolitan areas for an alternative lifestyle opposed less to any specific political image of metropolitan social life than to its perceived temporal and spatial expectations. To change is to escape city life. I fell into this research project. That is, at no point in designing my research on Australian country towns did I mean to focus on retirement. My background is quite different, as this earlier book suggests. But this subject forced itself on me within this broader project on the question of how culture matters to the sustainability of Australian country towns. The dominance of older people in most such towns is impossible to miss. As Helen would certainly agree, we shouldn't let the question of what attracts retirees to country Australia seem self-evident. To begin with, we should ask about the important part played by the visibility of an ageing population in that attraction. Nobody moves to these towns not knowing that lots of other retired people have moved there as well. This question, I think, helps us move beyond the usual economic focus in discussions of rural sustainability by foregrounding the social networks, institutions and cultural practices that actively sustain or limit everyday lives. I'm drawing on two case studies here, which I've called Northern Beach Town and Coastal Centre. Both towns are located on attractive coastlines with temperate climates, and both are defined by the exploitation of coastal attractions to sustain a combination of tourism and retirement economies. The broader literature on retirement migration might discuss them using terms like rural retirement destinations. David L. Brown and others define this in this way, the quotes on the screen. Their close analysis of demographic, economic and geographic variables finds that the major factors in a town becoming an RRD are an increasing level of population over 65, increased dependence on recreation and tourism and low dependence on farming or we could say, in Australia, other modes of primary production. Just as important for this national US study, however, is that within the RRD, in-migrating retirees have a higher relative educational attainment and income status. For Brown, this means that they tend to enhance the destination community's socioeconomic status. But I want to point to some other consequences. Other research on rural retirement offers less positive findings. Eileen Stockdale in Britain suggests that, rural, that retirement in migration doesn't lead to rural regeneration and calls for more positive migration policies, ones that improve perceptions about the quality of life in rural areas. Her focus is on declining peripheral areas of England and Scotland, and the towns I'm discussing are not in population decline. It's one of the differences about the kinds of um, Australian coastal towns I'm talking about. They in fact attract significant in-migration due to a perceived high quality of life, but still very few younger in-migrants because that perceived quality is almost exclusively a high quality for people of retirement age. In addition to economic benefits, Brown suggests that older in-migrants also bring experience and know-how to their new communities, and they are at least potentially available to contribute <coughs> leadership and skilled volunteer labour to community organisations and activities. But in the Australian context, just this benefit is incorporated into a broader narrative about rural decline. As Margaret Alston phrases it, there is a loss over time of young people and a growing number of people over 65. Small rural towns are becoming ageing communities with fewer services, cared for often by ageing volunteers struggling to paper over the cracks. 
So I want to adapt the RRD category to our context, focusing on two points. First, these towns dominated by in-migration retirement are also tourism destinations. The obviousness of that correlation, that people choose to retire in places they believe they will enjoy, just as they choose holiday destinations, obscures sometimes important problems affecting post-retirement lives. Second, an older community and the absence of some amenities identified with the city are attractants for in-town retirement. Such towns are thus troubled by a double ambivalence. On the one hand, the correlation between tourism, tourist and retirement destination is problematic because of the enormous differences between a holiday and retired life. On the other hand, these towns are attractive as RRDs because of an ageing population that works as a sign of decline in discourse on sustaining rural Australia. Australia's long-established coastal population distribution helps even smaller coastal towns reach a size that can sustain more infrastructure. Both my selected towns are large enough to maintain such crucial assets as schools, banks and supermarkets, some government agencies and long-distance transport. The tourism and retirement economies which feed one another and help build an ageing population also, however, deter development at odds with the peaceful and quiet scenic attractions of an RRD. In Northern Beachtown, at a community meeting discussing the youth exodus problem, I asked the audience of mostly retirees if they would want more employment or entertainment options that attracted young people. The immediate and uniform answer accompanied by laughter was no. <laughs> they had retired there in part for the absence of sights and sounds that they associated with city life. The combination of tourism and retirement makes these towns resemble each other more than their very different population sizes might suggest. The differences remain important. While both have a median age more than 10 years over the national average, coastal centre is 15% younger and closely related, also 10% more employed. Although coastal centre's unemployment rate represents a base much higher than the national average, these differences clearly relate to those economic benefits that Brown uh, associates with an RID. Having an older population than the national one, but considerably younger and also more stable than other rural areas because of employment that serves the combination of retirees and tourists. Both towns contain quite substantially more women than men. This might be expected. Women have a longer life expectancy and this is heightened by rural retirement given that, to this point, a majority of in-migrant retirees move in heterosexual couples with a woman living longer. Widowed people sometimes move away, often towards family connections, but the higher rate of widowed people in Northern Beachtown is tied to its lower socioeconomic demographics, revealing important ways in which post-retirement mobility is limited. The median household income there is cheaper, but even Coastal Centre has a spectacular 51% lower income and much lower rent and mortgage levels than its nearer largest, larger population centre. Lower cost of living are clearly a factor for anyone moving to the fixed incomes of either a national pension or personal superannuation. But if choosing a retirement destination involves consideration of cost of living, as well as the symbolic power of the picturesque, it seems that such assessment often ignores the importance of cultural resources crucial to a viable lifestyle once there. The imagined ideal rurality on which stories of rural decline depend is a historical agricultural economic boom associated with myths of past coherence and thus cultural conservatism. 
This imagination is foregrounded in Australian country towns by an ageing population that appears relatively homogenous. Both my selected towns are demographically dominated by people claiming Australian or, or European backgrounds, and more than 93% describe themselves as speaking only English, far above the national average. Public discussion of who lives there and who should cannot be separated from questions about how these towns should be lived in, the ones that ground sustainability discourse. It thus matters that Northern Beach Town differs from an RRD in the visible cultural diversity produced by its Aboriginal population, as well as in its relatively low socioeconomic indicators. In these ways, we might say that RRD category should include Coastal Centre, but not Northern Beach Town. Yet there are many such small-scale rural retirement destinations in Australia in which the population has not grown to a point where its amenities have outstripped averages for country Australia and thus outpriced many forms of diversity. Perhaps they should be considered differently than those higher up the population scale, but my sense thus far is rather that we need to understand Australian retirement destinations differently. Tight community relations are often emphasised in rural studies, as is the importance of local identity. A galvanised local identity does exist for people who have lived in these towns all or most of their lives, but its importance is highly qualified. It may become visible only at moments of tension over resource distribution. A key instance in Northern Beachtown was a skate park that local residents with children wanted, but which in-migrant retirees, without children to satisfy, widely hated as an ugly space for undesirable activities that intruded on their peaceful walks and views. There was a lobby group from a whole street. <laughs> a different example in Coastal Centre was the controversial development of an expensive arts centre reflecting new communities of interest arising from the town's growth. It housed a new gallery and an auditorium, but people identifying themselves as locals were years later still complaining about its cost and lack of use, charging the council with favouring wealthier retirees and their cultural preferences over the real majority of long-term residents. While governmental agencies and diverse community groups seek guarantees about access to resources available in metropolitan areas, they are not all seeking access to the same things, and some resources interfere with how the town is ideally imagined by other groups. The paradox of RRDs being popular for smallness and quietness, and thus opposed to aims of growth and, um, and even equitable resourcing, should be seen as a problem of representation and thus of politics. It is by no means clear that an ageing population is a failing population, as long as in-migration is sufficient, which has been the case for some time in both these towns. My aim is to accept the facts of an aged population without regret, which seems pointless. And that also means setting aside debates about economic development opposed to sustaining that situation. I want to ask instead about the cultural amenities needed to effectively serve this population. When I asked in migrating retirees why they chose these towns, I could loosely group their answers as either peace and quiet or my favourite activities. These apparently contradictory responses come together in ways of using the town's geography. Fishing, beach or waterfront walking, boating or sailing and simply looking at the water are not only interests that attract people to these towns, they are culturally ingrained Australian images of leisure and pleasure of both holiday and retirement. These activities were frequently mentioned as components of the life retirees imagined for themselves, along with others equally reliant on local geography or else dependent on a reorganisation of domestic time and space, for which the peace and quiet of a country town was a nicer view out the window. 
In the gap between what people recalled themselves wanting to do in retirement and how they spent their time years after, one factor looms large, the role of established social groups in organising retired country town life. I want to group these together as social clubs to stress the formal structure that sustains them while individual members come and go and their emphasis on producing micro-communities. In this category, I include service clubs for charitable sociability, Lions, Quota, Rotary, the long-standing Country Women's Association or the newer Men's Shared Movement, but also sporting associations, volunteer groups supporting institutions like galleries, libraries, museums, churches and U3A. I also include commercial registered clubs, which are licensed venues catering to a broad patron base, but focused in these towns on servicing older patrons. None of these social clubs counter what Haim Hazan has called the ghettoisation of older people that limit the possibilities of them mixing with other groups. But to a very large degree, that's exactly what rural migrants have self-selected. There is an extensive literature on the importance of peer-based socialisation for ageing people. But the importance of social clubs has been underemphasised, and this is also true of research on rural Australia. Country towns obviously have fewer social clubs than cities, but there are far more per capita. Despite the majority of the population living in metropolitan areas, of the several thousand such clubs in Australia, the majority are located in rural and regional areas. Density of participation is also greater on two levels. A larger proportion of the population participate and in overlapping groups. And maintaining the relatively high number of such clubs means more intense participation by at least some members. This is well known to any resident. Discussing my interest in retirees with my landlady in Northern Beachtown as I was moving in, she immediately suggested that I go to the RSL club. She said, you'll find lots of old people there. <laughs> After the local council, this RSL is the region's largest employer, but its importance to retirement culture largely explains its dominance. And this, this remains true in towns where no one club is so economically significant. The RSL sits above an estuary, which it overlooks through a long wall of full-length windows. In this sense, it symbolises the town as a town with a view. The main floor is mostly open plan, with bars, indoor and balcony table seating, restaurant, cafe, and the raised section locating an armada of poker machines, flowing into one another, all flanked by the view. Heavily discounted meals and drinks are a major appeal. Particular favourites were the $5 hot lunch six days a week, and the $9 Sunday roast with dessert. I checked yesterday and both prices had increased by just a dollar or two since 2012. So many patrons told me it would be impossible to make these meals at home for less that I initially thought they were quoting an ad. <laughs> a free bus was also available three days a week, making three trips covering the main holiday parks, uh, which locate both long-term residents and holiday makers in caravans, mobile homes and cabins. The retirement villages and the motel were able to book a pickup. The bus brings residents in for meals and entertainment starting at 5pm and returns to any requested stops from 7.30 until 10. Some patrons use the early bus as a means of transport to the town centre, given that there is little public transport and many steep hills. Although locals often insist a car is necessary to live here, Many do not have that option, and while the bus looks like transport for people who are over the limit, it is in fact far more utilised as a resource for retirees who can no longer afford or physically manage a car. 
In such ways, clubs account for age-related losses in vision, mobility, cognitive capacity, and other functional capacities, and offer safety, social support, offer safety, social support, and critical budget supplements. But their schedule of daily leisure activities is just as vital. A flow of indoor sports, exercise groups, trivia competitions, cards, music, bingo, raffles and badge draws, peaking in the days around pension day rather than on the weekend, represent a patron base with considerable free time. As there are multiple clubs in both towns, all with such schedules, they collectively provide a menu of continual activity. As the largest club in Coastal Centre phrases it, they offer something to play every day. I met Sheila because we both caught the courtesy bus to the RSL. Over time, we also came to pick each other out at the sports club raffles on Friday nights. Sheila had moved from Goulburn with her partner six years before. A messy divorce in her 40s had left relations with her adult children strained. So when she met her second partner, Harry, she was happy he wanted to retire north to the coast. Harry was also divorced and their combined assets were modest. So they purchased a small mobile home permanently stationed in a holiday park. It was big enough for two and right next to the beach, which mattered because Harry fished in all weathers. Sheila didn't like fishing herself, despite the big gone fishing decal on the outside of their home and the crowd of fishing-related knickknacks in the windows, all of which she'd bought. <laughs> she had instead made friends through the clubs. The only one she never attended was the golf club, ostensibly because she didn't play golf. What she played was raffles. Sheila's friends laughed at how arsy she was, one calling her queen of the raffles over and over again, epithet Sheila loved. She did often win and took obvious pleasure from everyone recognising it was Sheila again. <laughs> I could usually map Sheila's week by raffles, bingo and badge draws across three clubs. She did indeed play something every day. Aware this might be criticised, she stressed that she didn't drink one scotch and coke per day, that's all. And she didn't play the pokies, which she saw as gambling. Instead of a problem, she thought her raffles were fun and useful. She was selective about prizes, preferring meat, seafood, vegetable and fruit trays. This is the meat. <laughs> the general popularity of such prizes was recognised by their frequency and other prize offerings included bacon and eggs and packaged grocery staples. If no food was left, Sheila would take gift certificates for local businesses or items that would be good presents. She traded winnings with friends, so large food trays were the best, but organisers knew that many patrons lived in households of one or two, and trays were often smaller, like four lamb chops, two for Harry, one for her, and one for cold next day. <laughs> Sheila viewed her raffles as a household contribution, but it was equally clear that the friends she had made around them was a social lifeline she didn't feel she would have found otherwise. She didn't play sports and wasn't drawn to volunteerism, dismissing women who spent their time that way as busybodies. Sporting, drinking and hunting cultures are frequently singled out in Australian rural studies to argue that they underpin a social life that affords fewer desirable roles for women than men. But the tighter social networks and less diverse leisure activities in a country town, especially for those who experience increasing limitations on their mobility, increase the likelihood that gambling becomes a leisure choice. The shift from Sheila's raffles to higher risk activities like poker machines is theoretically easy to make in club spaces. But as she knew well, just as there are social prohibitions against drunkenness for women in this context, there are also prohibitions against poker machine addiction, and those who play generally learn how to represent their self-moderation. I met Doris at Northern Beach Town Bowling Club, where I worked in the pokies room. 
Special state training is required for staff in this part of the club, focused on rules for the display of government messaging about problem gambling, including avenues for self-exclusion by which players limit their own gambling. These spaces are supposed to be carefully controlled, including bans on incentives to gamble, like free food or drinks, and positioning ATMs some distance away to discourage withdrawals. But Doris's story indicates some complexity in the relations between gambling and problem for older people in rural towns. Doris had moved from Western Sydney about 10 years ago, not retiring from any job but accompanying a husband who had. When their girls were small, they had loved holidaying there, and moving to Northern Beach Town had been her husband's retirement dream. After he died, Doris wanted to return to Sydney, but it was financially impossible. Above else, all else, she feared losing her independence and ending up one of those old biddies in a home where I can't remember my own name. Managing her limited finances but still being able to gamble was a sign of independence for Doris. Apart from pre-retirement stories and a very often repeated story about how angry her husband was over an apartment building that blocked their small view of the ocean, <sighs> I heard that a lot of times, Doris mainly talked about money and staying independent. She carefully saved for utility bills and rates, was proud of all the little ways that she preserved her clothes and cut corners on groceries, but she set aside weekly money to spend on myself and that went to the pokies. Doris came to the club three nights a week. She liked to talk and counted some images of pokey players. She socialised around the machines. They laughed over their favourite machines, intervened if someone broke the unspoken rule of not using a machine someone else had reserved by blocking the tray, and bought drinks for each other. But if someone was losing quickly or badly, they were usually left alone, and they didn't ask for or lend each other money. Doris played low to mid-range machines and only ever one line at a time. But she always played to her limit and never had a win big enough to leave with a profit while I was there. Twice she even exceeded her limit, meaning all her available money. Usually Doris went home by walking across the street and taking the free RSL bus, except on Mondays when she came for the cheap dinner and had a lift home with a neighbour. Her legs were not good, especially her knees, and the walk was difficult. But the nights when Doris played over her limit were the nights when she missed the bus. And once she came to me in great distress, asking for the bar manager, she needed a lift home and he took her himself when he left. Next time, Doris was profusely grateful and apologetic. She offered her own stories about people who don't know when to stop, but excluded herself as only occasionally getting excited. Anyway, she said, you've got to have some entertainment. She explained this entertainment as not thinking you're going to win, but not knowing you won't. Doris represented the pokies as the possibility of difference in a life full of repetitions. Many of the most derided popular cultural forms, like soap opera, reality television or pop music, are dismissed as repetitive and thus facile. Like all these, the pokey experience is one of repetition and event, and its pleasures often come not from any expected gain, but from being in a moment of something happening. The increasing limitations on Doris's life made this as important as any friendships maintained around the machines. Comparing Doris's entertainment excitement to the rush that maintains addiction is useful in some respects, but it doesn't do justice to the country town retirement context in which her options for excitement are very narrow. Age, gender, money, social networks, health, taste, public resourcing policies about transport, physical geography and an established retirement culture in which elderly women playing the pokies are unremarkable, all combine to make this an accessible option. More broadly speaking, the narrowness of Doris's options are part of a price paid for the peace and quiet fetishised in the downsizing and downpacing of retirement and for the paradise aesthetics valued in the RRD. 
A combination of travel and volunteer leadership uh, filled out the retirement experience of Rita, whom I met in her role as president of the Northern Beachtown U3A. U3A is an organisation that offers inexpensive classes and discussion groups, sourcing both teachers and students from within the local retired community. Courses focus on whatever available retirees feel equipped to teach and others want to enrol in, from local history or geology to creative endeavours like watercolour painting or tie cooking. It's not coincidental that, like registered clubs, U3As are most visible and popular in country towns, where finding activities that feel productive is in high demand. Rita had been a psychologist before retirement. In the tight social terrain of U3A, she had to deal with clear distinctions between in-migrants and locals and was pointedly offended by criticism of her bossy but apparently successful management style. For her, this was about the difference between skills and attitudes nurtured here and in the city. Those critics wouldn't do the work properly themselves, but resented her background and abilities. This was continuous for Rita with other distinctions. She was particularly scathing about people whose version of retirement was going to the club every night, believing club sociality prevented other kinds of cultural development. Given her mantra of keeping mind and body busy, she believed the repetitions of club sociality offered no real mental activity. She didn't entirely reject the idea that friendship and community service work were forms of engagement that energised others through the clubs, but this led her to stress how hard it was for alternatives to thrive in a town where most people just do the same thing every day and refuse to try anything new. In fact, club regulars also embrace the importance of busyness to the good retired life. Both Sheila and Doris would agree with Virginia Simpson-Young and Cherry Russell that games like bingo are of benefit in maintaining cognitive abilities. The narrowness Rita would see in their lives is also not optional. Um, and here's a quote from Simpson-Young and Russell that's opposite here. Rita's car, licence, money and husband who shared many of her interests were assets they lacked, with Doris being additionally restricted by older age and poorer health. Increased presumption of mobility within country regions specifically disadvantages the elderly, among other groups with limited mobility. The regional centralisation of amenities, whether those are government offices, medical services, cinemas or the nice restaurant Rita longed for, begins an escalating spiral. The more amenities are accessed in a larger hub town, the more use of existing amenities in smaller towns dwindles, threatening their viability. It's not enough to notice that Rita's assets allow her more choice than Sheila or Doris. Helen's story with which I began suggests as much. The temporality of everyday life, the experience of time passing, is not a simple continuity. It fluctuates as space, institutions and people limit, afford and obligate activities. This is clearly true for everyone, but retirement evens out the temporalities of home, family, work and play, which are often presumed to be importantly different especially for adults. It not only removes the most recognised forms of work, but inserts retirement into all the others. Habitual practices of life have to be recrafted, even for those not leaving employment. Retiring to the country as an, internet, as an intentional reorientation towards downpacing emphasises these disjunctions. What George Simmel described as an opposition between metropolitan and rural mental life is a fantastic discourse on modernity. But it's not, as Raymond Williams' analysis of the opposition between the country and the city suggests, any less real for being a fantasy, not any less really lived. It is called up by experiences of both holiday and retirement, defined in opposition to working life. 
Certainly not everyone works their whole adult life, and that might literally apply only to a minority, but it is a normative expectation which structures the feeling of retirement. The spaces shared by tourists and residents are supposed to be exceptional, beaches, golf courses, waterways, but everyday spaces rarely used by tourists, like the library, U3A or the football club, are remade by retirement into spaces for making non-productive time produce something, whether companionship, excitement or just activity. This brings me to volunteerism. Measuring official employment in these towns is a very partial map of who performs valued tasks. The importance of volunteerism is driven partly by the retirees' desire for active and useful lives, but also motivated by gaps in resourcing. One example is the opening of a path from the shops to the beach in one of coastal centre's outlying villages, designed to make that walk safer and easier. This path wasn't built by the council, but by a coalition of retired volunteers. The council's community engagement manager conceded it would have taken a decade if they'd waited for the council. This wasn't unusual. She felt her role in local development projects was to ask what volunteer groups might be able to contribute. Say, what can the men's shed do? Do they want to build a playground? For most people here, retirement is eventually dominated by questions of productivity divide, derived from ideas about adult working life, whereby pleasurably indulgent time off needs to be time off from something. This does not contradict Brown et al's claim that while social engagement is crucial, Concern that older persons might become isolated as a result of disrupting long-time social relationships in the process of moving to a new community appears to be unfounded. But I would more cautiously suggest that a sense of healthfulness is associated with the self-perception of keeping mind and body busy and that new social networks can be effective parts of that. Their newness may even be an advantage, but maybe only in the short term. Let me conclude with Rex who had retired to Coastal Centre to spend his time messing about in boats. He and his wife, Eileen, bought a house with a boat shed, ramp and shared access to a small jetty. Eight years into retirement, however, it had been some time since Rex had used that boat. The physical effort required had become difficult following problems with his hip. Or, as Eileen reminded him as we discussed this at the club, first it had been a flu that he'd struggled to shake, then staying out of the water when it was colder so as not to get another flu, and then that had stretched into keeping the boat in the shed unless his son and their family were visiting, or sometimes he went out with friends in the summer. They disagreed about how often he used the boat now, with an evident awareness that they were representing both his current capacities and the success of his retirement plan. But Rex had found other ways to enjoy what their son called the cult of the boat having joined a men's shed that specialised in restoring and building old boats. Some retiring in migrants feel satisfied with the consequences of their retirement choices, and many others do not. I am not ignoring a bias to complaint here, proper to this demographic, perhaps, as well as to any interview about resourcing. There are these are mostly not interviews at all, though, but notes from months of living in these communities with their pleasures and frustrations. In any case, whether satisfied or not, every retiree I've talked to describes their relative satisfaction as retirees and the prospect of whether or not they need to make any change in the future in terms of validating cultural activities and focuses on everyday social engagement and leisure activities, more than on formal high cultural institutions, however much those appeal to some, like Rita. It's thus important to ask how retirees are included or excluded invited or distanced from the fullest range of activities, from spaces for socialisation through to volunteer groups which generate respect. 
The importance of this question is, in, is indirectly raised by Brown's study, which indicates they were surprised to found that older in-migrants have little difficulty becoming socially involved in their new communities. In fact, their level of both formal and informal participation are quite comparable to those of longer settled persons in these same communities. I agree, but participation is not as simple, as stable as this suggests. First choices are usually displaced many times in the course of retirement. Participation can also mean different things and generate different sorts of value while saying the level is the same based on survey data. Finally, such participation is enabled less by desire for a particular activity than by fit with the social network it involves. In-migrant stories reveal important obstacles to the form of participation which sustains an actively satisfying retirement. Sometimes these are physical, as with Rex's hip, but more often they resemble Rex's dislike of men who bought politics rather than boat knowledge to his men's shed. Such obstacles might be best understood as forms of what Pierre Bourdieu would call capital. Talking about social capital, value arising from social relations, is nothing new to rural studies and certainly long precedes Bourdieu. But Bourdieu's account of these differences and the not always neatly aligned forms of capital is useful here. It doesn't jettison the importance of money really apparent in the stories I've been telling, but it doesn't simplify it either. Bourdieu is clear about the importance of taste to the ways people distinguish themselves from or align themselves with others, and Rex's investment in capital arising from boat knowledge is about taste as surely as his concern that a restaurant renovation imminent at his club would do away with his favourite crumbed chops. However, in rural retirement, such tastes often have to adjust, often radically, often more than once, to what activities work for you and then continue to work for you in the long duration, if not permanent, relocation of retirement. Bourdieu's model is thus not enough, however useful it is as a first step. Downsizing and downpacing is a transformation of lifestyle. Geographers often call it lifestyle migration. But it relies, first of all, on the reorganisation of economic capital. Moving down the population scale involves downsizing relative to real estate prices. At the same time, moving to smaller communities makes one's knowledge and experience more unique, even as a new context involves reconsidering its value. It is difficult to predict losses and gains. But for sustaining adequate mental health, for lifestyles that support ageing physical health, and for sustaining stable populations in areas that are likely to appeal to retirees, the social clubs I've been describing are not optional. Moreover, available resources supporting such sub-communities do not meet all these needs adequately. These issues are important given that Australia expects the length of retired lives to continue to extend, and the retired population to continue to expand, and even as the attractions of rural retirement continue. One of the motivations at the heart of retiring to the country is leaving behind occupation defined by employment rather than interest. But this also means being positioned outside many of the responsibilities tied to ideas about adulthood. I want to finish by suggesting that life in retirement significantly resembles the formations of adolescent life. Especially for rural in-migrants entering new networks, everyday life becomes dominated by the importance of taste and peer groups more so perhaps than at any time since adolescence. This is a useful recognition, I think. Research focused on the cultural lives of young people acknowledging youth marginalisation and limited access to amenities has long insisted on the importance of facilitating their cultural interests as well as meeting their physical needs. The same um, opportunities is not often taken up in research on ageing. 
Also, while youth studies recognise the importance of taste-based peer groups and identities produced in relation to them, it also considers, has long considered, the conditions under which these change and the formal and informal expectations about desirable and even required ways of being a particular age. Assumptions that retirement is not a transitional period of life but just physical relocation, and sometimes even assumptions that aged people do not need resources for any future cultural contribution, underpin a broad neglect of what makes retirement feel personally sustainable. This is not confined to country towns, but a country town dominated by retirees intensifies this situation, and the social spaces which double this intensification because they too are dominated by retirees make what is at stake very visible in much the same way as a high school makes the transitions and stresses of adolescent life so clear. This is my final point. Considering what sustainable rural retirement might involve requires more than being attentive to multiple local conditions and taking a long-term view in planning for the impact of older in-migration. It also requires an investigation of the experiential conjunction of ageing, retirement and rural in-migration to at least find ways to encourage retirement planning that is better informed about the importance and pressures of taste-based communities and about the temporal and spatial challenges of retiring to the country. Thanks. So that was an absolutely fantastic lecture, thank you. And there's time for a few questions. Well, let, let me just start, because I, I thought the, the whole question about the sort of the complexity of the retirement experience and the, often the differences of what people find from what it is they expect, um, really, really fascinating. And it's the, it's the question about the continuation of this kind of retirement pattern that fascinates me. I mean, you were just assuming that it's going to go on in this kind of way. And is that because nobody ever actually finds out that it's a much harder deal than people thought about, than people first um, assumed? So I, I wouldn't say that nobody, nobody knows or nobody's ever noticed, because people do, but they tend to think that they've got that covered. You know, that they've thought about, well, if I don't like that, this yeah. is what else I'll do. Yeah. So I can think of one a woman, for example, who was like, I'm going to take up tap dancing because I always wanted to learn it. And then it was too hard and she hurt her ankle. And so then she said, well, that's okay. I always knew that if that didn't work, because it was a long shot, I'll take up tennis. But then she hated the women at the tennis club. <laughs> And, and so that didn't yeah. work. And then she was like, well, what else will I do? Right? So she felt like she had a sure backup plan. Yeah. But so I think that people, people do think about it, but yeah. the, you can't cover all the bases of yeah. what might vary. Okay. okay. Um, so, thanks, you had this lovely phrase um, uh, when you were talking about the pokies and the meat trays um, of the importance of being in a moment of something happening. And that really stuck out to me. And it was sort of juxtaposed to this other sort of maybe countervailing tension, which was around, you know, having to keep busy. And I just wondered whether those were countervailing tensions for your respondents along the sort of leisure versus mm. productivity binary or, or whether something else was going on. Because it seems to me that, you know, the place of the event in these rural communities and, and you know, things happening... Um, is something that cuts through, you know, some of the more um, scary, <laughs> you know, prospects of, yeah. of retiring. I guess. So, so I, I do think there, 
I do think they're at odds in some ways, though they're often working together, like in, in the same spaces and sometimes in the same people. But I think that the keeping mind and body busy is almost like a large consensus. Like people who have very different lives all assume that that's what you should be doing. Like that's what a good retirement is. Um, but they have very different interpretations of what that busyness might involve. Whereas the you've got to have some entertainment and the moment of something really unexpected maybe possibly just maybe happening, that that's a different kind of that's a different kind of feeling which sort of singles out how much busyness can just be rote busyness. So you know those endless lists of things to do and people who move between one venue and another doing things in their t like people will have one thing they do in the morning, one thing they do in the afternoon, absolutely every day you know, and sort of packed around by domestic, you know, parts of everyday life. And some of that is very much just about having a habit where every day is full of something. But in the moment of something happening is a bit more looking for an excitement that's not just those things that you've planned out. Like you always knew you were going to be at a club on Monday night. Because it made me think about sickness and mishaps. And right. Yeah, so, so, so that's a good point and I haven't, though it turns up over and over again and in a couple of these stories too, but I haven't, haven't thought enough about that yet, but, I, but it has to be, and that, that idea of, you know, declining capacity is there all the time and there is also, I guess, a similar sort of pair of tensions between declining capacity as this sort of gradual thing that you plan and try and get around and then the, 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 the event that you couldn't have planned for. Um, but that's, that's good, I'll, I'll have to work more with that. In terms of, of keeping busy, um, I'm interested in the relationship of the people you interviewed with wider networks of family. Mm. Because obviously in, in the old school country town, um, you could keep busy f through to great grandparenthood because the extended family was like physically nearby mm. um, but with all of the changes uh, demographically and people drifting to the city and so on how how do people generally think about their wider family and do people come to visit and how does that fit into these patterns of living yeah so in a longer version of this the, the family is a sort of constant theme I think the only one I really mentioned was um with Sheila's family who never came. But everyone had some sort of story about their relationship to their, to their family. So some have moved away and, and don't have a lot of connections left, but especially as they're older. Like maybe they did have connections, but they've passed away or they've lost touch. Um, but almost all of these people, um, although I did talk about Brexit, so, so they, almost all of these people um, have some sense of, of the place that they've chosen being a place where their family might like to visit. Like, that's even true for Sheila, right? You know, she has this sense that there, you know, you can put the, the table down and it makes another bed, you know, and someday her son might come. You know, they talk about it on the phone sometimes. So they do have a sense of their family, but they have chosen to move here where they knew their family wasn't. And in some ways it is a distinct choice mm. to choose different kinds of associations, associations based on what you want to do with your time every day over the idea that what you will do with your time is intimately connected to your family. And I think that's pretty consistent. Could I say, 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so that these towns can provi provide services for the elderly people that clearly will go there in the future. It's not easy in Sydney. I mean, you may have the Opera House, um, different cultural centres, but if you don't live close to a train line, if you're about to have two knees done like I am, um, you know, it's difficult where you go. You don't want to go on buses in peak hour. You've really got to be careful where you go, when you go. So it's not easy in a city that's mm. going to be bigger, twice as big in 20 years mm. than it is now. So retirement throws up very prickly issues, it seems to me, and I don't think anybody's got the answers. Living in gated communities is not the answer for me, uh, and maybe country towns until tonight seemed more attractive, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not so sure. Yeah. So... So, so I guess there are several things that I could say in response to that. The first is in terms of, yes, I do think that there needs to be better resourcing and I think the resourcing needs to think, uh, I think the priorities for resourcing need to be rethought in terms of what people do with their actual lives because a lot of the discussion about resourcing rural areas for in-migrant retirees comes down to health services. Where is the hospital? Where are the doctors? And that's fine and I'm not saying that doesn't matter. Of course it does. But people don't just go there to die or wait to be incapacitated or sick. They have whole other lives that they imagine that they will have and that they would like to have as much of as possible. And so that, is, that tends to exhaust almost all the questions that are asked about sustaining um, the, the lives of retired people in these towns. Um, and so, yes, I partly do want to say that they need to be far better policy uh, discussions about what kinds of resources are needed. And one of them is transport. Transport has got to be one of the most burning issues in any of the country towns I've worked with, not just for old people, but especially for older people. Because what you're saying about cities is quite right. I guess I'm saying that even before you're going to get both knees done, that's already a problem in a small town. It's not even a matter of, well, you know, I can still get on the bus, because there is no bus. So... It's fine for RSL clubs to be the sort of crutch that they are in some of these towns in a certain way. Um, but on the other hand, no, it's not fine. No, it's not fine that, that that's the only option. I mean, it's good that there is some option, but it's not fine that it's as arbitrary as it is. You know, is your club doing well enough that it has three buses on three days a week? Is, does that answer enough? we need to, to recognise that maybe we need the state to move into some of these towns and actually provide the kind of service that will allow yeah. city retirees who are over it 
to go there and, and, and you know, so find a, their way around. So when it comes yeah. to resourcing, there's a lot of problems about the relationship between councils and state governments and who pays for health care and who pays for transport and all that sort of thing. So, so you know, the governmental responsibility is part of the issue. I would like to know if the people there, they are choosing, they are making these choices to go there and live there, actually. Like, they, they know that they would live like that. Um, like, yeah, because... <laughs> I, my background is, is, is not from Australia, so I am just surprised that the people, like the elderly people, they will have these options and they will take them. And they will say, yes, I will be happy there, because maybe that could be possible. You know, maybe, maybe they can say, yes, I, I, I decide for this life and I will be happy living this So, So one of the problems that I, that I really see is the confusion between choosing a place where you're going to live in retirement and choosing a holiday destination. So people going to this beautiful bay, river actually, people going to this beautiful river are not saying, I want to come and play the poker machines, not at all. They're saying, you know, either I want to be on these boats or I want to walk along this this, this shore, they're, they're seeing sort of holiday activities and not the full sort of fleshy existence of what it would be like to live there all the time. And, and, I'm, and given available information, I'm not sure how they would, which is why I started with the McManus and Connell thing about place marketing and the, the push to try and regenerate rural Australia by marketing places like this as ideal places to move to as an older person, which also includes international marketing and discounts for in, international migration and various other things. So I think that there's some responsibility to be borne by not considering the resourcing and lifestyle questions that are actually involved for people who move to these places. But I don't think that they, they choose the meat raffles and... and and poker machines. They choose this. And it's also very interesting how the emotional communication is not, doesn't seem to be there. I don't know, I haven't been there, and after that you say, like, they are kind of apart. That I'm not sure I understood that question. Yeah, because uh, in one diapositive you say oh, that no. they are having not a lot of communication. Oh, the same no, no, that they, they are movement? integrated in the communities because yes. you have to remember that. So, uh, one thing, for example, the the Northern Beach Town RSL, more than seventy five percent of the population is a, adult population is a member of that club. So that is the community, <laughs> right? Going there is not being you know ghettoized away from the community. That's where the community is. So. People, people are members in different ways and people who have a lot more mobility, like I've met people who, for example, fly to Sydney every couple of weeks to go to the gallery because they're much younger and they have a lot more money. Those options do exist, but, I, but even those stories only last for a certain amount of time and I suspect, although I think I need to do more to be sure, I suspect that those people don't stay in places like this once they're no longer mobile. I suspect they move back somewhere else. Okay, well, thank you again for a wonderful lecture, and I love the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> right. so